They say being a parent is a full-time job, but I already have one of those. Luckily, I use Instacart to help me order everything I need while I'm stuck in meetings all day. So while Instacart is helping me get groceries, snacks for school lunches, and something for at-home happy hour, I get more time back to juggle my day job and my mom job. Save time by downloading the Instacart app or visit instacart.com to get $20 off your first order using the code INGREDIENTS20. Offer valid for a limited time. Minimum order $35. Delivery subject to availability. Additional terms apply. CCP spies, a sorry lot blinded by red-tinted glasses, according to Peter Mattis and Matt Brazil. Matt joins us today to discuss his recent book, China Communist Espionage. Matt, thanks for coming on China Talk. Well, I'm not a red eyeglass tinted spy or anything. I'm just a historian. I was an army officer early in my career and served a couple years in Korea and work in export controls and in Washington in the Office of Export Enforcement, where our motto was export now, legally. <laughs> and went on from there to the Foreign Commercial Service. I was four years in Beijing, doubling as an export control attaché, but mostly promoting tech trade between the U.S. and China. That was in the early 90s, post Tiananmen Square. And I ran all over China doing a lot of things that are called pre-license checks, which was uh, the most fun job I've ever had, uh, trying to determine whether consignees named on U.S. export license applications were making bubblegum or bombs with the (laughs) controlled technology that we were considering allowing to be exported there. What was the answer most of the time? <laughs> it was 50-50. It, it turned out that, um, uh, of course, the number of military consignees in China in all the export license applications was well below 50%. But the various interagency deliberations that led to pre-license check applications were not bad in determining high-risk exports. Most recently, I've been starting up a second book, which will be a more narrative treatment of this topic focused on the modern day. I'm also writing for a newsletter called Spy Talk. You'll find a number of stories about the national security state, including some new material on China that uh, I'm working on practically every day. Let's kick it off with the founding of the Communist Party. What role did spies have pre-1945? Well, when the party was founded in July of 1921, in the words of Chen Yun, who was one of the founding fathers of CCP intelligence, as well as the famous economist, of course, of the Mao years, the CCP didn't really have any idea about espionage or intelligence work. They had been trained in being clandestine by the Russians in the years leading up to uh, the founding of the party and afterward. But they were taken by surprise in 1927 in April when the nationalists pulled a coup and tried to kill as many communists as they could. And so coming out of that, the party decided to make as one of its core businesses intelligence work. And they asked Zhou Enlai to found an effort. And so from there, Zhou Enlai, throughout the rest of his life, plays a game of trying to be in charge, often succeeding to be in charge of CCP intelligence in its various forms, but sometimes being displaced. Whenever Mao wanted him displaced, that was the the overriding natural phenomenon or unnatural phenomenon in the case of Mao Zedong. They were pretty good at what they did, but they were often overwhelmed. In particular, they were overwhelmed after 1931 in April, again, when the chief of their spy service defected to the nationalist side. Never a good sign. Never a good sign, yep, yep. Employee satisfaction was at an all-time low, especially (laughs) way up high. But to be fair, Gu Shenzhang, a book about him in Chinese is Gu Shenzhang, the most dangerous traitor in the history of the Chinese Communist Party. Gu Shenzhang was caught in Wuhan and was given the choice, we can torture you to death or you can come over to our side. Now, some communists made the choice of the former, but Gu Xinjiang decided on the latter. And here we have a very interesting incident that tells us something about Zhou Enlai. 
because when Gu Shenzhang defected in Wuhan, he begged his captors to, to rescue my family. They're in Shanghai. They're going to be killed by the communists. They were a little bit slow at that. And Zhou Enlai coordinated the effort to murder the entire family, minus one baby who was left alive. And their bodies were buried under the bricks in some place in Shanghai. And it was only discovered when the smell became too strong. Anyway, after that, things kind of fell apart in the cities. Their networks were largely rounded up by the nationalists. And indeed, if you look at some statistics that are put out by the nationalists, in 1931, they caught several thousand people. In 1932, they caught twice as many people. These are communists in general, Communist Party members in, in general, but also a lot of spies. So by 1935, the Chinese Communist Party decided it had to abolish their organization that they had started, which was called the Special Services Section. And it all reverted to um, the control of the people in the Red Army area in Jiangxi, because this is where everybody fled to who could flee anyway. Uh, that included some major figures in CCP intelligence, including Li Kanong, who went on to become the leader of PRC intelligence after 1949. But they recovered partly in thanks to a vile and uh, reviled figure, Kang Sheng, who was brought back to China by Stalin. He had been in Moscow as a delegate to the uh, international. He was brought back and he, he was a good organizer. He was also a bastard. He was responsible for carrying out Mao's orders to purged the party during the rectification period in 1942 to 44. I love, I love this detail you have where at some point in 1943, Stalin sends Mao a letter saying, you're doing, you're overdoing it on the purging. And, you know, if you receive that letter from <laughs> Stalin, you probably might want to reconsider just how, just how many spies you're actually going to end up catching when you squeeze the lifeblood out of your organization. Organization. Yeah. And at that point, too, Mao was getting ready to purge a lot of people in the inner circle, including Zhou Enlai himself and other figures like Bo Gu. So, yes, Stalin decided to crack the whip and Mao felt he had no choice but to stop. And, and there was widespread dissatisfaction and even outrage in the party in Yan'an. And Mao actually apologized in several meetings for the conduct of the rectification campaign and the part that was within it that was really crazy, the salvation campaign. So after that, Kang Sheng's star was no longer so high in the sky. Eventually, he was relieved. Let's not forget also that Stalin saved Mao's butt again by persuading him not to, not to kill Chiang Kai-shek when he had him captured in the Xi'an incident, which, you know, would have probably led to the Japanese just taking over the entire country and wiping out the CCP whole hog. That's one of those what-if scenarios that's very fascinating. Yes, I, I agree that that would have been a major risk had he done that. Yeah, Mao wanted to put Chiang Kai-shek on trial and, and then have a quick execution, but it didn't work out that way. And of course, Stalin's interest was less saving Mao's butt than it was keeping the Japanese out of yeah. Siberia, and in other words, keeping them tied down in China. A very difficult situation. One of the things that fascinates me about these early revolutionaries is what tough boys and girls they were. At very young ages, they were doing crazy things. Now, if uh, I wouldn't want to compare them to the greatest generation that we have, likely we like to say in the United States, but, but they went through enormous hardships and, and crazy sacrifices. Yeah. It's interesting to think about, like, the life of, you know, Washington and, and Hamilton and Adams, who basically lived like gentlemen throughout the entirety of the Revolutionary War, whereas the sort of 15-year arc that Mao and co. co went through on their path to power. So, you know, what do you think the sort of imprints of all this sort of skullduggery in those 15 years, or I guess all the way up to 1949, where... Um, you know, they finally, they finally emerged on top. Well, one of the lessons was that you have to keep purging. They were purging themselves at Mao's behest throughout the 
the uh, revolution, starting in earnest in 1931 with the so-called Futian incident, which was really a series of problems in, the, in that area in Jiangxi, where Mao was waging war against people who did not accept him as um, the supreme leader of the movement. And a lot of people were killed. His intelligence organization that he had there, which was a military intelligence slash purge organization, was very key in carrying out a lot of these executions and uh, purges. And digging out traitors continued to be an emphasis with the CCP under Mao. It paused for a bit when Mao was displaced just before the Long March. But of course, during the Long March at the Zuni conference in late 1934, things changed because the consensus was that the military strategy up to that point had failed. We're being slaughtered. We need to go back to a, a guerrilla warfare type approach. And Mao went out there and he didn't become the supreme leader there. He, his star simply rose back to where it had been. But the path was set for him to displace his enemies through further purges that just continued and continued uh, until 1944. How important were spies to the CCP's victory in the Civil War? The Civil War was almost CCP espionage 2.0. Because the big purges were over with. Mao had tried his flirtation with the Americans. The Dixie Mission uh, is familiar to a lot of people. In 1944, right after being scolded by Stalin, Mao was hoping to get the Americans to commit to supplying weapons to fight the Japanese and indeed really to fight the Guomindang once the Japanese were defeated, therefore reducing his reliance on Russia. But that didn't really work out. So, um, so the the emphasis then was on leaning to one side eventually, with uh, leaning toward Moscow. But also purges were done, and for the moment anyway, and they focused on getting back to basics when it came to espionage. Lee Kanong, for example. Now, of course, the Japanese surrender in September of 1945 was a bit of a surprise that it came so quickly. And so, of course, the nationalists and the communists raced to occupy Japanese-occupied uh, uh, cities and areas throughout the country. And in order to continue the struggle along those lines, they needed more spies inside the KMT. And Lee Kanong dragooned a lot of people who had been sitting comfortably behind the lines, being ideologically correct, into going into a more hazardous occupation of being an undercover spy with a secret radio and all that kind of thing and, and developing networks and so on. And it worked. By the time that the nationalists retreated, really by the time of 1948 when inflation took off, something else that had taken off was... Uh, communist spies within the KMT and within their army. And it's difficult to measure how important that was, but it's but it was obviously crucial to their victory. Sure. Yeah, I know there are different reports of the generals telling them where they're going to march and, you know, potentially killing their own people because they were so dedicated. I mean, you know, sending their own troops into harm's way because of their commitment to the, the CCP cause, which is a pretty remarkable accomplishment if you're Joe and Lai. Yeah, I think John Kaishek's quote in his memoirs was there was no space they did not enter. Yeah. So one other character which played a pretty fascinating role is uh, Song Qingling, Madam Sun Yat-sen over the course of this period. So how did she contribute to these efforts? Well, she was an agent runner's dream, really. She was so well-placed and she had such a Teflon exterior, maybe not Teflon, but she was so unassailable. She could not be arrested, tortured, and disappeared or anything like that because she was the symbol of the original revolutionary movement. <clears throat> so she fled China, actually, to get away from the nationalists in the early 30s, which was 
planned by uh, an interesting character, this Raina Promi, I think her name was, an American communist who was her, one of her confidential secretaries. But, but to get back to the main point, she was in Moscow for several years and then returned to China when the, when the war was about to pick up with Japan. And she lived in Chongqing. She lived in Shanghai, Shanghai first, Chongqing later. And she was somebody who all the foreigners wanted to meet, certainly. Fluent English, of course. Went to Wesleyan or Wellesley, I guess. Fluent in English. Absolutely. And she was also a social and societal figure sought out by practically all Chinese. It would be really interesting to know more and to see, see documents and know more about what she actually did. But the things that we do know she did included meeting CCP agents, passing along code books, and spotting and assessing people. So among those that she spotted and assessed and uh, reported on were Edgar Snow in 1934-35 and uh, George Hatem, Dr. Ma, Ma Haida. So she re- assessed and reported on them and passed them along to communist agents who took them, they traveled together, took them to Bao'an, which was the pre- pre-Yan'an, of course. Yan'an was not occupied by the communists until after the war started with Japan, and they negotiated that with the nationalists. And of course, that led to what I would call the CCP's first international influence operation of great success, the book Red Star Over China. Of course. Song Qingling's house you can visit in Beijing. It's right off Hohai. And I mean, she's worth a, she's worth the whole podcast in and of herself. She married Sun Yat-sen because she wanted to be involved in politics. And this was the way to do that. If you're an active woman in, you know, 1910. And what a, what a, what a remarkable life. But anyways. Yeah. yeah. And she didn't become a communist until she was on her deathbed. Her cover, if you will, to maintain international credibility both for her and for the communist party so that we could show that we are not just a single monolithic party. We have the cooperation of other elements of society. Her cover was to be a non-communist, but she, of course, was thoroughly in to the communist cause. So, okay. Congratulations, Mao. You did it, 1949. Let's, Let's take us up to the Cultural Revolution. So how did things go for the spies in this period? That was very difficult, but I want to briefly comment on the the interim. So China went through a period of, again, lots of purges, uh, looking for enemies within. And indeed, there were plenty of enemies within. There were leftover Kuomintang troops and spies and bureaucrats and so forth. And they were, they were dug out during numerous campaigns starting in 1950. The Korean War against America didn't help in, with that spirit very much, of course. But during this time, the intelligence agencies, it took a while to start their foreign intelligence agency, the investigations department, for different reasons, partly the Korean War, partly illness of Lee Kanong, who was recognized by everyone as the person who should lead that effort. But he nonetheless led a, a scattered effort throughout several agencies, including the military before that. And then interagency coordination and standards build, building began in earnest and continued all the way up until the Cultural Revolution. Li Kanong fell and had, uh, an, I think it was an aneurysm, but anyway, he, he was disabled for the rest of his life after 1957 when he had that accident, which was damaged to, the, to his brain. And in 1962, he died. But he was succeeded by people from the revolution, notably Kong Yuan, a longtime revolutionary, and the man who was married in a double wedding ceremony with Deng Xiaoping and uh, his wife. But when the Cultural Revolution comes along, these people are all targets. Now, why on earth would uh, Mao Zedong want to target these people? That, that is a question. That he deserves... gave a bad toast at Dung's wedding, clearly. <laughs> you never know. If only we had the transcripts. But the crux of the matter seems to be that the far leftists believed that there was all sorts of evidence against people they wanted to target held by the the investigations department. And so one of the first things that happened was that just like every other bureaucracy in the Communist Party, in the PRC government, factions, Red Guard factions immediately arose. And they started fighting over whether or not, first arguing, then fighting 
over whether or not to release what Zhang Qing, the leader of the left, called black materials. And these black materials partly were black materials that showed that she was not a very diligent revolutionary herself, things she wanted to suppress. But she was, in the main, looking for evidence against people that she wanted to do away with for various reasons, including not being totally on side with Mao's leftist program and her support of it. Before we go on. So in the purges, I love how there was some guy who used Shenmi Zhuyi. So like, I don't know, like mysticism as a way to find spies, which is never really a good sign for the professionalism of your intelligence organization when this is this is what you're falling back on. So Matt, let's talk about Shemijui or the mysticism strategy when it comes to unearthing spies within the ranks. Okay. That started, it would seem, with Kang Sheng himself during the rectification campaign and in particular the salvation campaign of 1943. So in the beginning of the rectification campaign in 1942, Kang claimed that he could sniff out a spy. He could talk to somebody and know whether or not they were a spy. He didn't claim Shunmi-Jui or anything. He didn't or anything. He didn't claim mysticism, but he claimed that he, he could tell that a person was a spy simply by spending a little bit of time with them, shaking their hand and so forth. So that led to a lot of arrests. There's a famous line that Kang Sheng said to Li Ray, Mao's former secretary. He wrote about this. Kang Sheng said that that we won't need evidence because Li Ray said, what, what evidence do we have against these people you're accusing of being spies? We won't have evidence. We will have their confessions. There's a great line. If you've ever seen the movie, The Spy Who Came In From The Cold, the, the bad guy in the movie says to Lemus, we won't need evidence. We will have your confession. <laughs> Almost like he's <laughs> Kang Sheng. But he continued in this vein. He was thrown out by Mao Again, after the Marshall mission was done in late 1946, he was relieved of his duties and had probably been de facto relieved before that. And so intelligence was conducted in a rational way between 1946 and 1965. But then along comes the Cultural Revolution, and Deng Xiaoping is displaced on the Politburo as the political overseer of of CCP intelligence, and he's replaced by Kang Sheng. And then all of a sudden, dozens of people are gone from the leadership. Off they go to labor in the countryside, or maybe worse. And the only survivor is this character, Luo Qingchang, who was a brilliant analyst, was known for his encyclopedic knowledge of the enemy during the revolution and during the anti-Japanese war, World War II. And he is also a cultural revolution beneficiary par excellence. He was close to Jiang Qing and the left, and somehow he survived the cultural revolution. And that somehow is, is really interesting for the modern day, because even now, in spite of the fact that he was a cultural revolution beneficiary and would logically have been thrown out by 1979. He survived all the way until 1983, first of all. Deng Xiaoping apparently couldn't get rid of him until there was a reorganization and the Ministry of State Security was formed. And then there was a good reason to chuck him out and put in somebody who was uh, a little bit more professional. But even today, Luo Qingchang remains, he's deceased now, he died a couple of years ago, but he retains a good reputation. There's nothing that can be seen anywhere on the web that criticizes him. There have probably been some things written. I think I've seen one of them, a Samizdat-type manuscript that criticizes him, which I'm hoping to use in the next book. But other than that, the CCP is silent about his probable crimes during that time. And even though the CCP expelled Kang Sheng, and they expelled many other senior people who turned against their comrades in the revolution. For some reason, he's still a hero. And this may indicate the extent that leftism has not actually been erased in the Communist Party. 
So now that we're coming closer to the the modern era, let's talk about some of the themes that sort of defined the first 30 or so years. You write that autarkic self-reliance policies under Mao after 1949 isolated China's intelligence services, and domestic spying never needed the sophistication required in Soviet or Western blocs. So what did that mean about the sort of professional development of, of these spies? There was a concern that the intelligence services should not be used in the same overarching way as the KGB was used by Stalin and indeed the way they were used all the way up until uh, the end of the Soviet Union. That is that they had this wide ranging set of responsibilities everywhere. They controlled the borders. They did internal policing. Their different directorates had many different functions. And of course, they had the Foreign Intelligence Service as well. However, with foreign intelligence for the CCP, they kept a leash on it. They didn't do much internally. They were employed overseas and they were largely in embassies, but they were also uh, running some very successful operations like the Larry Wutai, the Jin Wudai, Larry Wutai Chin operation, which lasted all the way from 1947 until he retired from uh, a part of the CIA in 1983, and he was caught in 1985. But they were limited. They did not have the reach that they have today. And I I can't really explain much beyond that. I I think that requires a lot more study to to more fully understand. So, Matt, before we go into reform and opening era, we can't miss talking about the Princess Kashmir bombing case, which I learned about for the first time in your book. So what the hell was going on with this? That's a great controversy today. And, and what was going on was that the nationalists had the brilliant idea that they would assassinate Zhou Enlai by putting a bomb aboard an Indian airliner that was going to take Zhou Enlai from Hong Kong to first to Jakarta and then to Bandung for the Bandung conference in 1955, partly because they'd wanted to get Zhou Enlai for a long time and were looking for an opportunity and they didn't have much on the mainland. Their, their operations on the mainland were almost nil. They were all caught very early on. And when they tried to drop in agents in Eastern China, they all failed. It was like it was like the British trying to go into Albania. It just didn't work out. They're, they're all compromised before they got anywhere. They saw this opportunity. And apparently, CCP intelligence learned about it. And Zhou Enlai changed his travel plans. But for reasons that are still unclear, maybe having to do with a uh, cold-blooded measurement of return on investment, so to speak, deciding that they didn't want to have sources and methods compromised, perhaps, they decided to let that flight go ahead. Or, or the potential like PR gain of these evil nationalists killing, p- killing folks, right? Yes, that's, that's certainly a possibility as well. And so they let they let it go. Joe's personal driver was on board that plane that went down over the ocean. And so were a bunch of Chinese press correspondents and foreign correspondents, foreigners who were foreign correspondents as well, were killed. And the most of the crew was killed in that uh, thing. So the, the bomb was placed in one of the engines. The pilot lost control as he was trying to ditch into the ocean. And uh, I think all but three people were killed in that crash. So there's been a lot of writing about this. We tried to summarize it in the book. The communist side has ignored the critical element here that Zhou Enlai changed his mind and got on and and changed his travel plans and went ahead with this, even though they knew what was going on. And in the accounts written by the communist side, they just skip past this and ignore the obvious contradiction. You know, if you knew about this, why didn't you just stop the flight and save a bunch of lives? So, yeah, it is certainly possible not only that they wanted to avoid compromising sources and methods, but as you say, they wanted a propaganda win. And indeed, when Zhou Enlai 
was at the Bandung conference. Everybody wanted to see him and touch him and, and listen to what he had to say at a much, much higher rate of attention, in part because of this incident. So let's take us closer to the present day. So how does the rebuilding process go over the next few decades after, after Dung gets in charge? It wasn't bad, but it was also marked with corruption. And that gradually built up, of course, as reform and opening picked up and business opportunities also picked up. There were opportunities for corruption. But the, the impetus to start a new organization in 1983, and Zhao Ziyang, who was then premier, if I recall correctly, he was the one who gave the speech at the meeting where this was proposed, and he said, there are so many foreigners coming to China now, and there's so many people who want to spy on us that we have to change direction. We have to coordinate this stuff better. We need a Ministry of State Security to take care of this. And, the, and it's called state security in English, I think, for a good reason. Now, the Chinese now like to call it their Ministry of National Security, but I, I think that's a misnomer because state security is one thing, national security is another when we think of national security, we think of foreign threats and protecting our interests overseas and the safety of our citizens and, and our borders and that sort of thing. But state security, I think, is what the Chinese are thinking of, and that's a little bit different. Peter Mattis has written about this, and several other people have too. State security is a bit different, and that is the security of the Communist Party's rule, the security of the state itself against internal enemies. We're, we're a lot less focused on internal enemies around here. People tend to swear an oath to the Constitution and, and actually tend to mean it, with a few exceptions here and there. But in China, they're really concerned with, with prolonging the rule of the Communist Party. And that's where state security comes in. And that's indeed was the primary focus of work for MSS was protecting the state against the party state against internal enemies and enemies that come from outside and want to subvert the communist party's rule. So they did a pretty reasonable job at that and indeed, you know, it, going all the way back to the Yan'an period certainly areas occupied by the Chinese Communist Party and indeed the People's Republic itself have always been an extremely hard target for foreign espionage in part because of the social organization that comes with a successful CCP rule over society. And they did a great job. They were catching spies right and left. The Americans managed some successes, certainly. Yu Changsheng, for example, the man who was a mole inside of the new MSS and gave the Americans clues that led to the apprehension of Larry Wu Tai-Chin, was an exception. And there... And, you can't avoid those sorts of things. There have to be some successes here and there. And indeed, if you read James Lilly's book, China Hand, he hints at some successes in the 80s and into the 90s. Yeah, that one made no sense. I was really confused because this guy's bragging about, oh, yeah, we're doing these dead drops. And you're like the only white person walking around Beijing. It seemed pretty hard for him. <laughs> I mean, I read that a little bit and was a little, it was a little skeptical of his claims, but. Actually, it's, it can be done. I, I believe that, that Mr. Lilly was giving us a correct impression because you've heard the term Moscow rules. And I, for some reason, I've never heard any term like Beijing rules, but, but there, there have been successes, and they have to do with adapting to the circumstances. Uh, a really good book that I think gets into some... There have been no equivalents written about China, because for some reason, probably having to do with money, bilateral trade and all that, we don't get very much about China and spying and so forth in public. But there have been cases that illustrate that it's possible to run agents under these very difficult circumstances. For example, a, a really good book I'd recommend is David Hoffman's The Billion Dollar Spy, which was about the CIA running a man who gave them information about Soviet defense systems for a long time. 
And uh, there's stories in here, for example, about a group of, of four people, two CIA officers, two spouses, getting into a car. And they have that, they have that famous blow-up, pop-up doll device, whatever it's called, that sits in the front seat and looks like a person. So they go around a corner, and they're being followed by the KGB, of course. They go around a corner. They come to a screeching halt. The uh, man in the passenger seat gets out, and up comes the blow-up blow up spy, spy doll. And then off they go. And he hides in a doorway, and the KGB goes past him. And, and hey, presto, he's out there not being tailed. And he goes to his uh, agent meeting. So... They've developed these sorts of things, and of course, they, they, these spy versus spy competitions go on, and they managed to have some successes. Now, of course, in 2010 to 2012, something north of 20 people who were CIA agents, uh, that is, uh, spies being run by CIA officers, local people, were rounded up and shot in the back of the head by the Chinese side, which is an interesting thing beyond the tragedy itself. It's very interesting that the Chinese side sees spying as this existential threat that must be stamped out with all cruelty and efficiency. Whereas in in this country and in other Western countries, spies are a nuisance. We catch them. We put them in jail. We even have a, uh, a prominent individual who is running an organization that advocates for helping people who are spies to come out of the closet, confess, and be treated with leniency, the noir.usa. We view it as something that where somebody should be put in jail and reformed and then released, or maybe traded away to mm-hmm. the other side, but the Chinese want to stamp them out, which is a legacy of the revolution. So another legacy of the revolution is this sort of tension between red versus expert, which we've talked about a little bit in the cultural revolution context. But you write that intel units are bastions of faith in the CCP to the detriment of their effectiveness. And unlike in the West, where intelligence organizations, for the most part, are sort of positivist and just trying to understand what's going on around the world, the analysis that goes on within the CCP is more Marxist, where the goal is to find stuff that confirms whatever you already believe about your theory of, um, you know, the central global contradictions and how you expect them to be resolved. So, so how has this dynamic played out? I think it's just as much of a human thing as it is a Chinese communist thing. And the reason I say that is that here in the United States, for example, there are things that a politician must say in public that they, and there are things that they might say in private that if they become public, become scandalous, even if they are realistic things, because we're a democracy and and we have voters who are lightly informed in many cases. And and these lightly informed voters are offended sometimes if you talk too realistically about international affairs. But in China, the sort of equivalent, and I don't want to say that they're the same at all. But but the human equivalent is that in party circles, Marxist values are sacrosanct. And so the reporting that comes out of the intelligence community has to recognize these sacred cows. They have to recognize the inevitable decline of capitalism, this sort of thing, the triumph of socialist values once people are shown the way. And so when intelligence analysis is done, they have to recognize these sacred cows and they can't really stray beyond them. However, Peter's done some work where he has found that some of the reporting is done semi-privately. That is, that an analyst will give a minister a eyes-only type intelligence analysis that is a little bit more realistic. As well, what the MSS does is they try to, uh, we have an example in the book, they try to recruit people to write analyses for them on questions that they're interested in. And that isn't always to suborn them and blackmail them and turn them into agents against their own countries. Sometimes it's just to get 
an unvarnished opinion that they can present as a foreign view. And indeed, uh, I did. I did think that one was that was really funny. There was some ex army intel officer or something, and then he was getting like fifteen hundred dollar checks to write ten page reports, which ten other think tanks they could all they could just Google for this sort of information, which you know is enough to land you in jail if you are selling that analysis to the party. So everyone, uh, all your listeners out there, be wary of your LinkedIn inboxes because uh, you never know who might be on the other side of your uh, surprising lucrative. Um, surprisingly, un- surprisingly unlucrative consulting arrangement. That, this is one of the things that that struck out to me is like uh, just the fact that how cheap they seem to be for for some of these operations. I'm sure they have a budget like everybody else, and they have a quota of um, production quota that they need to meet, and and the budget that they need to fulfill it within. Yeah, it's it's an interesting situation, and again, it doesn't always mean that somebody's being suborned into and blackmailed into being a traitor. But I, I would say one thing about LinkedIn, and that is, as an author, I accept all LinkedIn <laughs> invitations, but I am careful. I, I don't I don't care if there are ten MSS agents on my LinkedIn uh, among my LinkedIn connections, and the things that I post on LinkedIn are intended to be public. You know, they're not intended to be for any select audience. However, of course, I'm very careful about any proposals sent to me. But people don't send me proposals. I think they seem to understand that I'm not in the market for that. So, Matt, let's talk a little bit about economic espionage. Uh, You write that the 10,000 grains of sand thing is really not the right analytical frame to understand what the CCP is doing on this regard. Yeah, I... and. Just for people who haven't heard this interesting uh, tale, so there was a uh, an FBI agent uh, uh, named Paul Moore, uh, not agent but an analyst uh, who was once head of analysis for China. I actually met him once when I was getting ready to go to China with the Foreign Commercial Service. But but anyway, his his idea, his hypothesis was that to put it in a sort of a story was that if the Chinese, the Russians, and the Americans wanted to know about the composition of sand on a beach. The Americans would send in uh, satellites to take pictures. Nowadays, they would send in drones to scoop up some sand. The Russians would send a Spetsnaz team at 3 o'clock in the morning to land on the beach, take some samples, and go back to the submarine and take it off to Moscow. The Chinese would somehow send uh, 10,000 tourists to the beach and they would have a lovely time and then they'd fold up their umbrellas and take go back to Beijing and shake out their sand, uh, shake out their, their beach towels and they'd have all the sand that they wanted. And one of the reasons that he came up with this was Chinese side spies like everybody else when it comes to professional operations. Although they have some missions that are unique, such as technology acquisition. But the thing is that they sort of give a letter of mark from the king. They give a deputization to state-owned enterprises to go out and and, uh, steal their own technology. And they also do not make it against the law in any way for Chinese citizens to go in for their own entrepreneurial operations to steal some technology here in the United States, for example, take it back to uh, China and start their own business or take it back to China and work for a Chinese company. So I I think this is where that grains of sand idea comes from. Way back when I was working for the Commerce Department in Washington in the uh, late 80s and early 90s, I hate to date myself, even then there was the feeling that U.S. law enforcement and counterintelligence officials were overwhelmed by the number of Chinese people who seemed to be doing these things. And uh, it's been the same complaint over and over again for decades. And for some reason, the people in Congress have decided to not address this topic. And now we have the head of the FBI saying we're opening up the case concerning China in the United States once every 10 or 12 hours. And still we are without sufficient resources, apparently. So this is where that idea comes from. And it's interestingly illustrated in two videos put out by the FBI. 
one of the videos is called Game of Pawns. That's like in chess. Oh yeah, this one was really bad. It it you know it was it was cheesy and it wasn't completely accurate. It was a dramatization, but it does show a process by professional intelligence officers to recruit an American who is in China, which is often the way it's done, because if you're in China, of course, everything's under control. You don't have to worry about counter surveillance, etc. And so that's the professional side, as depicted by the FBI, as they gloriously solve the case near the end. But the other one is called Company Man, another FBI video, starring the same bad guy who was <laughs> the spy master in Game of Pawns. He also plays the uh, one of the bad guys in Company Man. And this one is about an amateurish attempt by a Chinese state-owned enterprise to steal fireproof glass technology from a company in New York. Uh, now, let's see, who does glass in upstate New York? Could it be Corning? Uh, it seems like it was Corning. And that operation was ridiculous. They picked out some people who were engineers and they found a guy who hadn't been promoted lately. And without checking his background or taking much time at all, they just gave him a, a rather blunt approach and said, come to China and get lots of money. Right. And so he reported this, of course, to his corporate security office and the FBI was brought in and these two people were who were not nearly as clever as they are depicted in the video, were busted by the Bureau. So there's that. And another interesting case, which I think is just going to trial now, is the case of Xu Yanjun, the Jiangsu State Security Bureau. Deputy Chief of the 6th Section of the Bureau was running a fairly decent operation where he was trying to get the secrets of carbon blade fan technology for extra hot, extra fast engines from General Electric, that is aircraft engines. And this is something the Chinese have been trying to do for decades to get that particular technology. Because, you know, if jet engine is burning really hot because it's fast, if you don't cool those fan blades, they melt. And engineering them to do that if their metal is a real challenge, but the carbon fan blade technology apparently allowed that to be done in a much simpler way or allows it. So Xu corresponded by email with several people, apparently the actual number seems to be unknown, brought one or two of them to China. I think one guy in particular to China to lecture about carbon fan blade technology and then proposed that they meet in a third country, Belgium. What a choice. <laughs> They meet in Belgium, and he would bring his company computer, his laptop, with him, and they, that they would get a hard drive and copy everything from, the, from his hard drive onto this other hard drive and go home to Beijing and have all these GE secrets of how to design these engines. Bad country to pick. Should have gone to Hong Kong or maybe, I don't know, Malaysia, where there's less of a close intelligence relationship with the United States because uh, probably this was detected, I think, by our, our, our good friends at Fort Meade, Maryland, the NSA. I, I'm just guessing here that they figured this out, reported it, gave it to the Bureau, and, uh, and then liaison was made. And, and when Xu landed in, in Belgium, he yeah. was nabbed and quickly sent to the United States. And interestingly, you know, the Chinese side did not make a big deal out of this. But then there's the case of Ms. Meng, who is the CFO of Huawei, who was caught in Canada and still is yet to be extradited to the U.S. And there, of course, it's, it's a propaganda feast that's being had by the Chinese side to depict her as a innocent victim and all that, even though there's uh, apparently good evidence of financial fraud against U.S. law, but but that's not a spy case. You know, that's yeah. that's something different. So coming back to government affiliated videos, do you have favorite Chinese TV series or movies that that covers the sorts of themes we've been talking about today? Yeah, there's there are a couple state secrets is one of them, which can be found on YouTube. 
I don't remember the proper names at the moment, but they're easy to find if you search on the Chinese characters Guajia Mimi, State Secrets. Then you come up with a couple of them. One of them is set in the modern day, and it's all about state security officers catching Chinese people who are spying for foreign powers. And sometimes they'll show, for example, a Chinese man talking on the phone, and at the other end there's another Chinese man, and he's standing in front of the Tower of London, this sort of thing, and giving away secrets over the phone. And the other one is set in. There's several actually that are set in the Revolution, and that's interesting because it reflects. What is going on with the discussion in public about espionage, and that is that it's focused on the revolution, and it's showing people, patriotic people, fighting against the Japanese, struggling against the corrupt, vile Guomindang enemy, this sort of thing, and that carries over to the one or two modern day type series where people are struggling against corrupt and vile. Internal enemies who would betray China would be Hanjian race traitors and uh, Pantu or renegades spying for Taiwan, that sort of thing. So, Matt, let's do、uh, let's do a few minutes on、uh, supercomputers. How about it? So, supercomputers are a very interesting topic. Nowadays, supercomputers are typically constructed using parallel processing, which means that you arrange. CPUs, central processing units, made particularly by Intel, but also by AMD, and GPUs, graphics processing units, made most prominently by NVIDIA, although they're also made by Intel. You arrange them in parallel. Arranging circuitry in parallel is something you learn when you first take any course on electronics. And so the bottom line there is that usually thousands of these CPUs, prominently the Intel Xeon. 12-core,、uh, I think it's called E5 CPU with 12 cores. That is with 12 equivalent CPUs on the chip itself are arranged, and they build these supercomputers. According to the website Top 500, 96% of all supercomputers depend on Intel processors, and NVIDIA GPUs also play a prominent role when it comes to artificial intelligence. There are. Over 200 of these world-class supercomputers in China now, again according to Top 500, and they're used for many things. They're used to forecast the weather. They're used,、uh, particularly if you bring in artificial intelligence and GPUs, the graphics processors. They're used for biomedical purposes to uh, uh, diagnose breast cancer. So this is something that's also used, of course, for military purposes to simulate nuclear explosions. So you don't have to do so much nuclear testing to develop your nuclear weapons. They're used for designing missiles, and they're used in cryptography, in particular to either construct cryptographic solutions to keep your communications secret, or to attack cryptographic solutions like NSA does, right? And so supercomputers are now an important element, not only. In those spheres, but also in chasing after people who have an ethnic profile of some sort, particularly Uyghurs and Tibetans, and so there's been uh, a lot of uh, uh, not a lot of publicity, but at least some publicity on that score in the last couple of years. And the most interesting essay that I've that I've read lately, there are two of them. They're both in the book. China's quest for foreign technology beyond espionage that was just published by Routledge. It's edited by William Hannes and Dee Dee Kirsten Tatlow. Again, that's China's quest for foreign technology. The most interesting one regarding supercomputers and the use of them in finding Uyghurs, finding a Tibetan in a crowd, is、um, by Dalia Peterson. It's called "Foreign Technology and the Surveillance State," and she. Documents using Chinese sources where people have written in China about the glories of NVIDIA GPUs and Intel CPUs. She documents how this infrastructure to track people by ethnicity has been built in Xinjiang, and、uh, it gives us a peek, I think, into the、uh, into the future of what China will look like, how this sort of activity will proceed. Back in the Obama administration in 
I think it was August of 2014, they initiated controls because before that, anybody could sell practically anything to any consignee in China, including a military consignee, to build a supercomputer. That included Intel. And these Xeon processors, for example, at the retail level, they sell right now for eight or nine hundred dollars each, which is a typical price. Of course, through the uh, channels to computer manufacturers and other big purchasers, they cost less, about half as much, probably, maybe four or five hundred dollars each. Well, you do the math, and four or five hundred dollars times one or two thousand for the number of CPUs that go into a supercomputer is uh, big revenue. And so that was allegedly controlled in 2014, 2015 by the Obama administration, where they required uh, an export license to make such a sale to China that would have to be considered before it was granted. The Trump administration has tried to control it too, but I'm not seeing evidence that, that the sales have actually stopped. So this is something that requires a lot more study to determine exactly how much of this is going on. Matt Brazil, thanks so much for being a part of China My pleasure, and I wish you luck in getting fantastic guests or finding something fantastic in Washington, D.C. in the future. Fingers crossed. It's beginning to look a lot like wood. Follow my every step. Take notes on how I crept. I was about to go in depth. This is the way I creep my season. Here's my get to rep. I kept to say the least. No, no, it can't cease. So I began to piece my two and two together. Got no snowy weather. Have to find something to do better. Bet I said some time, so shut up that. Nonsense about some solid, solid. I got sick. Crock if it ain't real, ain't right. I'm like, no matter what the season. Forever chill with Smith. I said my fifth. I chill with West and got my reason. So tell me, what did you expect? You thought I'd break my neck. I'm leaning back, my elbows out the window. Coke ramen endo fills my body. Where's the party? We roll deep, we dip to underground. Sees a lot of hoes around. I spit my game while waiting countdown. I fight for one, three, two. Here comes the one. A new year has begun. Be funk, spark another one. one. 